Danny Mac Show with BK, getting you inside the cards and St. Louis sports on 101 ESPN. Into the circle. Shot score! Walker has two! It over to Scandella to Krug. Slap shot, they score! They score! And Walker deflects the puck in! He comes up from Springfield! And if you've got a hat, chuck it at your radio! Nathan Walker with his first ever hat trick in the National Hockey League! So the Blues win it, and Nathan Walker gets the hat trick. You know what? Just like we drew it up, Lindgren in goal, plays well, and Nathan Walker gets a hat trick. And, yes, I'm leading to what you predicted, Tanner. So go ahead. Almost go ahead, go had ahead the shutout. What, what so when did you predict this, and what did you say? At the, I think it was after Walker's second goal. I said, I'm, I think I said, Walker hat trick, Lindgren shutout, question mark. Anything can happen. And then I got blown up on Twitter. Oh, way to go. There you go. One of them came true. Okay, 50%. That's pretty good. So were people mad at you because by saying that he was going to get the shutout, it's kind of like you cursed a, a no-hitter. No hitter. Yeah. 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 Okay. That was the vibes I got. And I think they were also afraid the moment I said that, that the Blues were going to lose. So. <laughs> Love it. All right. So the Blues win it. Walker gets the hat trick. Fabry had a couple of four. Detroit. Scandella scored for the Blues. Pareko as well. Shots on goal, 31-26 Detroit. And for the second straight game, the Blues did play one skater short. They had 17. It has six uh, injured players and three more in the COVID protocol. They could not call up another player because of the salary cap constraints. Lindgren's first NHL start since March of 2020. That was for tomorrow's opponent, the Montreal Canadiens. Pablo Budnevich uh, had an assist. He scored 18 points, 9 goals, 9 assists in the past 16. But last night, it belonged to Nathan Walker. Yeah, no, definitely for sure. I think uh, every NHL game you can get in, and I think uh, I think makes worth it, makes it worth it. Um, you know, I think over the course of my career, my life with hockey, um, you know, my family and I and my wife and my kid, um, you know, we've made a lot of sacrifices, and, uh, you know, it's kind of nice when, this, when stuff like this kind of happens. Pretty interesting. Walker is just the second Blues player in all these years, all these uh, decades in franchise history to court a hat trick in a season debut. Craig Berube, what did you see? Yeah, you know, very happy for him. He's a hardworking guy, really good teammate. You know, really happy for him. Happy for uh, Lindgren, too. He played, you know, did his job. Team played well, though, which is good. Yeah, we were pretty solid all game. Yeah, he sounds pretty fired up. Uh, 29 saves on 31 shot attempts for Charlie Lindgren. Um, and the Blues were able to let him settle in early on. Yeah, I know it helps for sure. Um, you know, I think um, getting the lead, he, you know, it's going to help him and feel a little bit more confident for sure. And um, But, you know, he, he, he looked confident and sharp to me right from the get-go. And the Blues, you know, they are hoping to get Bennington potentially back this weekend, but does he go right in there? Then you have other players that are somewhat close to returning. David Perron is on the ice uh, yesterday for practice. So Lindgren right now, you just kind of ride it out and keep it going. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's pro hockey for you. I mean, 
um, you're in Springfield one day and you're up in Florida the next. I mean, that's just uh, that's just how it is. So, um, you know, it's it's our jobs to to always be ready. And um, you know, it's uh, it's been a heck of a year down in Springfield so far. And you know, I felt uh, I think that really helps me uh, to bring some momentum up here and and you know definitely gain some confidence from that. And um, yeah, just want to keep on keep on going because it's a it's a really fun team to be a part of. So later in the show, I'm going to ask uh, on the crossover Alex Ferrario about guys that are not uh, in the lineup right now and when they could be back. You got Bozak, Falk, Bennington. That's all COVID related. Neil on the IR, Costin on the IR, David Perron upper body, Huso upper body, Jake Wallman upper body. So you know. You're hoping again, like Bennington's close, Falk is close, you get those guys back. But you have to wonder, though, Tanner, that it's not like you flip a switch and you're just back in there. These guys haven't been on the ice. So do you give them a day or two, some practices? Do you want to kind of ease them back in? You know, Krug came right back in, and it seemed like he hadn't missed a beat. But I, in watching how guys have come back, not just with the Blues, but other sports, it's not a flip of the switch. So... You know, you're dealing with a depleted roster, and it's beyond the 10 days of the COVID restrictions for these players to be out. Yeah, and the good thing for the Blues, if you want to call it a good thing, it's kind of silver lining, is your depth guys are playing so well that it's not like, oh, boy, we really got to go get these guys back and we got to throw them in. You can take your time. The way that Nathan Walker played last night with the hat trick, I think Logan Brown's looked really good coming up. Uh, Dakota Joshua, I think he's only got a point, if I'm not mistaken, but I think he's played a solid 10 to 12 minutes of hockey for the St. Louis Blues. So you're getting this contribution from your depth guys, which helps kind of ease the the pain of letting these guys back in and Craig Berube knows that's where he's getting his contributions right now everybody from Springfield to the guys that are on the uh, on the roster for the St. Louis Blues here in 2021 everybody's got to chip in and help and you know we're getting you know we're getting the help from everybody everybody that's in the lineup we're shorthanded but everybody's doing their job and contributing um, in some way um, which is important um, so you know the our veterans are doing a good job leading the way, um, playing good hockey, playing solid hockey, playing the right way. I think that that you know was the most important thing here tonight coming into the game, them leading the way. Now, there's a couple of ways I've been thinking about this because the Blues, in doing the numbers here, they've been able to get points in six of their last seven games. So is that a byproduct of when you have players that aren't making millions and aren't everyday lineup players some guys coming from springfield they're playing with desperation and sometimes in a long season any sport you're talking about that's a good thing you're forced as a franchise to thrust these guys in a lineup these guys are playing for their nhl lives you're going to get a game seven performance and effort out of them every single night that's desperation because they're trying to make more money and and stay in the league now, on the flip side of this, though, I've been thinking, how good is this Blues team when fully healthy? Now, we saw them get off to this great start, and then it was Crew going down, and then it was Saad was out with COVID, and you had some other players get hit with injury or COVID. So now in this last three- to four-week stretch, you're missing some of your highly paid players, your big-name players, and the guys you're counting on for the full season. I think there's two ways to look at it. I may be crazy, and I'm sure people on the text line will tell me I'm out of my mind. Get back everybody you want that is healthy, available, makes the big money, the the big-name players. I get that, but there is something to, I don't care what sport you're talking about, players that are playing for their professional lives. 
They go out and you have desperation. Now, do I want to see Justin Falk and Bennington and all these guys back in the lineup? Absolutely. You're a better team. But in the short term, man, that's you're catching lightning in a bottle sometimes with some of these lesser known players. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because I think it was Charlie Lindgren said after the game he came in for Houston when he got hurt. I think he said something along the lines of, yeah, I know I'm going to have a very limited opportunity. I need to take advantage of it. And those guys, they know it. Maybe they can Wally Pip somebody and get a job maybe from a Clem Costin who's on IR or James Neal stay up later when these guys come off. You never know what could happen and Doug Armstrong is always willing to make moves to make things work out if he sees some young guy playing very well so I think that's a great point by you and it also maybe provides a little bit of an energy boost to some of these veterans that were going man we're in this it's gonna be a long stretch but then you get the young guys coming in you get the Logan Brown providing a little bit of a spark Dakota Joshua we saw the Blues when Joshua was called up last year when they started dealing with all this stuff there was all of a sudden this kind of new energy this new guy on the block that nobody had really heard of except guys in the Blues locker room and when he comes in plays very well and the coach talks about him it just provides another spark to the team here's the other thing too if you're that individual and yes you're wearing a blue sweater or your fringe player playing for the red wings i don't care what team you're playing for it's cliche but man it is true in sports you essentially are auditioning for the rest of the league there's scouts everywhere there's gms in the house they're watching and you're playing for a job so maybe somebody's watching that game and you're getting your shot and that guy says you know what that is a fit for our team now he may not be a fit for the blues because when they get back healthy he's going to get squeezed out of a job but for our team he's exactly what we need and you pull off the trade and you bring him and now all of a sudden he's an every night nhl player or major league player basketball player, whatever happens all the time you're auditioning for your life every time you're out there your professional life and that's just the way it is yeah, auditioning, and if you look at the Blues roster, I mean, we talk about it, you know, there's the trade when the trade deadline comes up, some of these guys, maybe they propel their stock and they can be sent somewhere that is rebuilding and they can get an opportunity. Uh, Robbie Fabry, when he went to Detroit, remember yeah. he was kind of stuck in a log jam. And kind remember of the stuck. jump he got off to at yeah, the start? He, he was awesome for them. And he's been one of their best players kind of this year. He had a really good game last night. I think he had two goals, if I'm not mistaken, had both goals for the Detroit Red Wings. Playing so, on their top line. Yeah, so that's something that you said. These guys are auditioning and they're, they're taking advantage of it it's providing a spark for the blues as a whole i i I always try to i guess look at baseball because i'm around it more than any other sport but when they call up a young player there is a sense of energy in a long season when you play every single night for six months you're hoping it's well really it's seven because you include spring training and you hope it's eight there is just a a jolt of energy you get from that young player coming up now whether or not the player performs is another story that's up to them but I, I'm sure we you know, we talked about it with all the injuries the Cardinals had at, at different times. You just get a jolt. And, and for a fan, if you follow it every day as tightly and as closely as we do, it's something else to look forward to. Lars Newpar, perfect example. Absolutely. He was a guy that was probably, what would you say, fifth, sixth, seventh in the outfield depth chart heading oh, yeah. into the year. Mm-hmm. And then he gets called up. He provides a bit of a spark. All of a sudden, Newt is going yeah. in the ballpark. I mean, that's the perfect example for the Cardinals and kind of what we're seeing with the Blues as well. All right. We're going to talk uh, with Jim Cott coming up. This is a interview I conducted not that long ago. Jim Cott now is officially going into the Hall of Fame. It is long, long overdue. He's a fabulous guy. He's a fabulous broadcaster, loves the sport, loves St. Louis. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. Um, Tanner's heard the interview, and you were telling me, you're like, man, people are going to really enjoy this. And I I think you will. So we're going to visit with Jim Cott, and that will be coming up next on 101 ESPN. Back to more of the Danny Mac Show with BK on 101 ESPN.
visit with Jim Codd here on 101 ESPN. And uh, this past week, it was announced that Jim Codd is headed to Cooperstown and Major League Baseball's Hall of Fame. Spent some time in St. Louis as a specialty guy coming out of the bullpen for Whitey Herzog. Now, we're talking about two and a half decades that he played. Nearly 280 wins, 16 gold gloves, three-time All-Star, and uh, just one of the great people in the game, one of the great athletes that ever played the game. Jim Cott, I think you're going to enjoy this visit. It wasn't that long ago. I had gone to dinner with Tim, uh, Tim McCarver and Jim Cott, and after dinner I said, hey, Let's sit down and uh, and tomorrow and and let's talk it over. Let's let's have a little fun. I said I think people in St. Louis would really enjoy it because you're a member of one of their favorite teams, 1982, and that's where we started this conversation, winning that 1982 World Championship. Well, the first thing comes to mind. It was uh, the obvious highlight of my career. Uh, I was listening to the American League Championship Series in 1997. Orioles and Indians. Our good friend Tim McCarver was doing the game. And he said, if the Orioles win, Cal Ripken will go back to the World Series for the first time since 1983, 14 years between appearances. Who holds the all-time record for length of time between World Series appearances? I'm sitting home scratching my head. I said, see, I went there in 65. I said, I think I'm the answer to that question. And I was. So to sit down there on that bullpen bench with Dave Ricketts waiting for Bruce Souter to strike out Gorman Thomas and uh, realize that here after 25 seasons, I had a World Series ring, which a a lot of players never get a chance to do. uh, That's my fondest memory in baseball. Souter from the belt to the plate. A swing and a miss, and that's a winner! That's a winner! A World Series winner for the Cardinals! Porter throws his mask into the air. The players converge around the mound. The police arrive on the scene. The canine patrol and the mounted patrol. Some fans manage to get on the field. But they needn't do that and they won't be out there very long. The Cardinals have won the game 6-3. The Cardinals have won the National League pennant. And the Cardinals have won the 1982 World Series. I, I always look back at that 1982 team on the turf at Bush Stadium, too. When you look at Obergfell, Ozzy, Tommy Herr, Keith Hernandez, who I think is the best, in my opinion, defensive first baseman I've ever seen. You would know better than I. But I look at that as the best defensive infield the Cardinals have ever had, and I think it's one of the best in the history of the game. No question. On, on turf, I mean, Whitey built that team uh... – around the ballpark. Uh, a lot of teams now, well, if the fences are too far, let's move them in so the guys can yeah. hit home runs. Well, we traded uh, you know, an icon in Teddy Simmons. We traded Sixto uh, Lascano, Kenny Reitz, who you know, Whitey wanted speed. So he built that team with the turf around Willie and Ozzy and Tommy Hurd sure. could run, Lonnie Smith. And defensively, I found out um, real quick when, when you got the hitters to hit the ball on the ground, Obi was very underrated at third, but Ozzy and Tommy, and then, like you mentioned, Keith. So, I mean, the Cubs at one time had Bouchelle, Sanchez, Sandberg, and Grace. Right. was a good infield, and they were on, on dirt mostly and on grass in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Chicago. Uh, and also was underrated was our outfield because yes. George Hendricks, for a few years, I think, was as good an all-around right fielder as there was in the National League. And, of course, he had Willie in center. And Lonnie in left, uh, when he came up, 
Uh, Danny Ozark put him in right field one night against Candle. He'd never played right field, so he started missing some of these slicing fly balls. People thought he wasn't a good outfielder. Well, in 82, when an opposing hitter would hit a ball down the line off that turf, Lonnie Smith cut those balls off, got him into second more times to keep the double play in order, little things that don't show up in the box sure. score. So that's what made the big difference between our 82 Cardinals beating teams like the Phillies and the Expos that maybe had uh, more star power. When you think back to Whitey and you had a chance to play for him and he was a master of, of using the guys in the right spots with the bullpen, what, what comes to mind in, in how Whitey dealt with you in particular and with a bullpen and, and just putting guys in the right spot? Well, when I got traded to the card, actually picked up off the waiver list by the Cardinals, I was kind of surprised because John Claiborne called and uh, I was on that 10-day DFA list right. designated for assignment. And he said, can you be in St. Louis by uh, 1230 tomorrow for a Wednesday businessman special? I said, uh, well, I guess so. He said, yeah, we picked, we picked up your contract. I said, you know, John, I only had one more day and my 10 days would have been up. He said, no, but we need help in the bullpen. And uh, I said, you understand you're not talking to Goose Gossage now, right? <laughs> you got the right person. He said, oh, yeah. So what was funny is I, I fly into St. Louis. I get there late morning, hustle, get out to the stadium, put my uniform on. Daryl Knowles is walking out. I'm 40 or 41, and Knowles, he's like, the, he said, you're replacing me? I thought I got some young kid. So now I go down the bullpen. And I hadn't thrown for a while, so I get up. I said to Dave Rick, can I get up and toss a little bit? Sure. So the phone rings. Kenny Boyer says to Rick, can he, can he pitch? Right. So Vuk is on the mound. We got a, like a 2-3 run lead over the Cubs. They bring me in in the seventh inning to face, I think I, think I faced Dave Kingman. So I go in, and there Vuk looks at me. We were teammates with the White Sox. He looks at me and said, what are you doing here? See, I hadn't, I hadn't even seen him before the game. It's well, anyway, that was, the, uh, that was the start of my stint in the bullpen. And yeah. then after the season, uh, Whitey had taken over. And then every year at the end of the year, I would just go to Whitey and say, well, what do you think? You know, I'm 41, I'm 42. Do you think uh, I've had enough? No, I want you back. I want to use you like I did Steve Mingori in Kansas yeah. City. And I'm going to build my pitching staff. He's the first manager I played for that did this. I want to build my pitching staff from the ninth inning back. So if, if Cardinal fans remember, for a brief time, we had both Fingers and oh, yeah. Bruce Suter. That's right. And then Raleigh was traded before he ever put on a Cardinal uniform. So he said, you're my lefty guy. So what was so good, <clears throat> I could sit in the bullpen and the phone would ring from the sixth inning on. And I would say to Ricketts, that's Doug Bear. Uh, that's Jeff Lottie. That's me. Uh, you, Whitey was so consistent with how he used us and got us in against hitters that we had a, a chance to be successful. I looked at the opposition lineup before the game, and you'd see the left-hand hitters, and I said, well, come the seventh inning, that might be my guy. Sure. And, of course, uh, it paid off because we, we ended up winning the whole thing. It's an incredible story, your career, in, in so many ways. And, and uh, I was talking to Tim McCarver, as you mentioned, our good friend. He said that he was and, – and one of the amazing things about your career is your durability and how long you played, certainly. And he said the great thing about Kitty is that he wanted the ball. No matter what, he wanted the ball. So he told me a story, and I don't know if you remember this, but you're in San Francisco. You have dinner with Tim. You had been traded to the Yankees. 
And Tim says, well, where are you going? And you said, I'm going to the airport. He said, what are you going to the airport? I'm, he said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I got traded. I'm going to pitch for the Yankees and Billy Martin. And sure enough, the next day you, you pitched three innings in that game. Do you remember that? I remember uh, catching the red eye. Actually, Bob Lemon was still the, the still the manager. Just before. Okay. He, he got fired shortly after that, uh, which is no surprise in New York. But I caught the red eye. I get to the Yankee Stadium about 11 in the morning. I walk in, shake hands with Lem. He said, well, welcome to the Bronx Zoo. <laughs> and, and about three hours later, I come in with uh, men on first and third and one out. And who, do, who is the first guy I face? We talked to, about it about two months ago when I was in Minnesota is my former teammate Rod Carew. Wow. <laughs> and I ended up getting a, a ground ball double play out in, uh, uh, from my first appearance uh, for the Yankees. But that story really defines you. You wanted the ball, no matter what. Hurt, three days rest, no rest, whatever. You wanted the ball. Well, my, my theory was early on, and uh, you know, I was in the cortisone shot era. Sure. If your arm burned or hurt or something, you, you didn't dare. Uh, I'll give you some quick background. Um, I had uh, I had a streak in '62. I'd actually had my mouth, uh, my teeth knocked out by a one hopper. And so every time I ran, my my heel would hit the ground and it would jar the stitches. I said to our pitching coach Gordon Maltzberg, I said, Maltzy, I can't run. The, the, when I hit the ground, it's jarring. But but I said I'm fine to pitch. Well, okay, you know your uh, your your uh, your legs aren't going to be strong. And uh, okay, so. Four of my next, I think my next five starts were all complete games. I came back on the fourth day against the Indians, nine innings. And uh, and then I thought I might need an extra day. So I, I went to him and said, uh, you know, I, I'm having a little trouble getting loose the, between starts. And maybe I should use an extra. He said, you know, we could start Lee staying in your spot. But if he does well... You know, I I can't guarantee you get your start. I mean, that's the right. way it was. You can't guarantee. Right. So I learned early on that okay, I signed to play this game when I was 18. I don't know how much long, how much I can play, how long, but I want to be able to play and compete every chance I get, so that when I'm 50, I don't look back and say, oh man. Why did I? Why did I take you know this nonsense? Now a six-day rotation right. and stuff. And so that's probably one thing that I really took a lot of pride in is that uh, I never, I never missed a start because of an arm injury. <clears throat> Excuse me. I my uh, uh, injury that set me back quite a bit in '72 is uh, last year before the DH. I hit a double, slid into right. second, broke my navicular bone yep. out for the year. And then in St. Louis, actually, in 76, Danny Ozark called on me spur of the moment, go out and run for Greg Lazinski. It's probably the worst decision I ever made in baseball. So Jay Johnstone hits one in the gap. I slide into third and uh, got a lateral crack on my right kneecap. And uh, my season basically went, I think I was 10-6, and six and I ended up 12-14. and 14. So my two worst injuries were, were base running. But sure. I, I always wanted to make sure I could go to the mound. 16 consecutive gold gloves um, may be an odd question, but where did you learn to field so well, and how did you do that? Well, you'd, you'd appreciate that doing what we're doing right now, uh, uh, talking on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> and that 
I grew up in southwestern Michigan, and on Sunday afternoon, I could listen to eight games. Uh, the Cubs, the White Sox, the Tigers, and then when the Braves moved to Milwaukee, all played Sunday doubleheaders. Sure. And my dad's favorite team was the Philadelphia Athletics. He, he was a Lefty Grove fan, Hall of Fame left-hander. I was a little kid. I didn't grow until later. So my hero was Bobby Shantz. Wow. Jimmy McCarver actually played with Bobby right. in St. Louis. Bobby was 5'7". Uh, won the MVP in, I want to say, 50 or 51, won 24 games, and known as the best fielding pitcher in baseball. So I would listen to Bob Elson, the voice of the White Sox, and he'd say, here's Bobby Shantz. When he throws the pitch to home, he lands on the balls of his feet. He's ready to go either way. He's in great position to field, and he's the best fielding pitcher in the American League. So I'd go to uh, the back of my garage in Zeeland, Michigan, throw the ball off the back of the garage and I'd try to mimic what Bobby Shantz looked like. I go to spring training in 58. We go through the PFP drills, pitchers fielding practice. Our pitching coach said, hey kid, you look just like Bobby Shantz. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. So that's really by mimicking my hero, that's really where I developed uh, the importance of, of fielding and getting myself in the right position. It's an amazing story. Uh, we mentioned Billy Martin before. Uh, you've been around Billy and we're around Billy a ton in all different facets of this game. When you think of Billy Martin, what comes to mind for Jim Codd? Well, I'd say with respect to his talent, I would say uh, what comes to mind is if he could have been isolated and locked in the dugout as a manager, uh, he was a great game manager in terms of, you know, Rod Carew stole home seven times in 1969 when Billy was our manager. Uh, he, you know, he was a risk taker as he was off the field, right. a gambler. But you know what? What uh, his off the field uh, and his his alcohol problems and so forth really uh, created a lot of distrust uh, between some of the players and uh, and the team. And you know, he, <clears throat> you know, I, I don't think we we felt like he was. Um, you know, he was basically a second guesser from a pitching standpoint because. <clears throat> Excuse me. You you needed Billy needed a strong figure for a pitching coach, but he would never bring one in. He wouldn't mm -hmm. trust uh, putting that responsibility. So, you know, I I had a and I love pitching for Billy for for one reason is that uh, my last start in '69 before the um, before the season opened, um, I was facing the Cardinals in spring training. Lou Brock hits a line drive back. I knocked it down, but I went to lunge for it, and I tore a little, pulled a little something in the left groin area. So Billy sees me limping. He said, you're going to be all right. I was scheduled to pitch second game of the season. I said, I think so. Had it all wrapped up. And, of course, in those days, uh, Novocaine was never out of, the, out of the question. So he said, well, see, if you, see how long you can go. Maybe you can go five. I pitched 11 innings my first start. <laughs> and you know the story with Billy with oh, all yeah. the complete games at Oakland. So he would stay with you. Yeah. But then the flip side of that was if you gave up a home run or a hit on a fastball, oh, he would get all over the catcher or the pitcher. So we had our battles like that. But, but in, in general, just to, to describe Billy Martin, if he could have been locked in the dugout to just manage the game and then somehow controlled himself off the field uh, – you know he would uh, he was a, a successful manager but he would have uh, had fewer problems off sure. the field text line is blowing up people loving this uh, visit with Jim Cott it'll continue after this uh, brief timeout what a great mind and man in the game of baseball
101 ESPN on a Friday, and uh, our visit with Jim Cott continues, and a lot of people on the text line enjoying this. Just a long-form sit-down interview with someone that uh, loves the game, played the game at a high level. He's headed to Cooperstown broadcast at a very high level as well. It's my interview with Jim Cott. So you start in the late 50s, you finish in the early 80s. How did you keep yourself... um, changing with the times I guess would be the right way as the game evolved and the game changed or maybe it didn't but how yeah. did you keep yourself relevant and making sure that you had a job on somebody's roster well I, I think first of all going back to uh, in 1959 I was with the uh, Chattanooga Lookouts double A before I got called up and uh, I had set the Southern Association strikeout record. I struck out 19, then I struck out the first four in the next game. So I was kind of an over-the-top, fairly hard thrower for those times. And then I did something to my shoulder. We had no MRIs, nothing like that. And so I said, well, take 10 days off. Well, I come back and my arm angle, instead of being like, say, from 12 to 6 on a clock, it's it's just a little lower. And and then I, I had an additional injury where I went to tag a runner and with his knee hit the back of my left hand not intentionally so I broke this wrist bone up by my middle finger well this all leads to the fact that when I came back from that my arm angle was a little lower and my ball started moving down and away they'd call it a two-seamer today we just call it a moving fastball well then Eddie Lopat one of my first big league coaches had said use the expression you know kid you never really learn how to pitch till you hurt your arm It's a great expression. Yeah. And so instead of thinking you're, you know, a power guy, which a lot of guys are today, the the mission was give the hitter enough opportunities to get himself out. Yeah. Late movement. So every year, I think I went to spring training with the mentality, uh, even years that I knew I had the club made, uh, I'm a rookie. You know, I, I... I mean, I don't, when I see spring training games today, I don't understand guys using all their pitches and throwing 100 miles an hour the second time up. I don't, uh, out. I don't even think we use signs till about our third time out you're in spring fastballs, training. You're just yeah, getting, you're just getting the rhythm, right. getting a little movement, getting the feel of the mound, and trying to condition yourself where you'll have maximum power in September. Right. <laughs> Not in, Save uh, up those bullets. Yeah. So, so, but in every year, I would try to go to spring training a little earlier. I got a great lesson from Warren Spahn, which a lot of today's young pitchers probably didn't hear Warren Spahn, but he won 363 games, and I was fortunate to get a pitching lesson from him in uh, 62. So I said, uh, uh, Warren, and first I said, Mr. Spahn, you know, and he said, and later I got to call him Spahny. <laughs> but he went to center field with a bucket of balls, pick out a ball, take a hop, step, and jump, and one hop it into second. Uh, started a short distance and then moved back. And that was my spring training routine every year from then on, just to kind of get my, uh, as Tom Brady, the great quarterback today, would call pliability and flexibility. Sure. And, and that kind of stretched my arm out. So I had that little routine like that every, uh, every spring and, and with the uh, kind of the mental mindset that, I don't have this club made, you know, by the end of spring training, I want to prove that I can still pitch. And I think particularly my latter years, that helped me a lot. How did broadcasting start for you? That's number one. And number two, did you always know that once your playing career was done, that you might get into broadcasting? Well, uh, answer that last question first. No, I had no idea. <laughs> but but uh, 
people may not remember, but in the early years, uh, we had to get a job in the off season. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I don't think I was a full-time baseball player till maybe 1970, maybe 10 years into my Guys career. Guys today wouldn't even no. fathom that. So I'm doing a post-game interview with the great Ray Scott, who oh, was yeah. the voice of the Packers, and Halsey Hall, who was an icon in Minnesota. And they said, well, here I am, 23 years old. Well, what do you think you'd like to do when you're done playing? Well, when you're 23, you're going to play forever, right? Sure. Well, so I just off the cuff, I said, you know what you guys are doing? That, that seems like it'd be kind of fun. <laughs> well, the next day, the Twins get a call from Bob Zellner, the, the owner and general manager of a 500-watt daytime station, KSMM in Shakopee, Minnesota. So he said, hey, uh, I heard your interview last night. How would you like to go to work in the offseason for, for us? So I did uh, high school basketball, football. I did shows like you and I are doing. I did the Livestock Report, National Anthem. That's <laughs> the, awesome. The whole thing. And then um, as, as time went on, I, I still didn't really have – a goal that when I'm done, I'll be uh, uh, get into broadcasting. But before alternative programming, when we had a rain delay, they would call players up to the booth. So actually, when I was a teammate of, of Tim McCarver in Philadelphia, uh, Harry Callis and Richie Ashburn, we had a long rain delay in Wrigley Field, called down and said, you know, could Jim come up to the booth? So I go up there, and the producer said, uh, you know, we told stories for about a half hour, and the producer said, boy, you ought to think about getting into this business. And then we had the player strike in 81, a young man named Jody Shapiro, who was running home team sports. Mm -hmm. He called and said, uh, we're going to televise minor league games during the strike. Would you like to go to Rochester and do a game with Ralph Kiner? And How great so, is that? Yeah, so my first game... The shortstop for Rochester was Cal Ripken, oh. and the pitcher was Mike Boddicker. Wow. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of how I started, and then I got a chance to do college games on ESPN, and it, uh, it just kind of went from there. You're still so good at what you do on the air, and now we, all of us in this business, are asked to incorporate analytics into the game and how we try to explain that, which for me it's, and I don't know about you, but for me it's very tough. Um, if I can't explain it in six to eight seconds, to me, it goes over the viewer's head. How about for you? Number one, analytics in general in the game. Just your thoughts on that. And number two, trying to incorporate that into broadcasting as, as a kind of a footnote. Well, it, it, as you said, it's, it's hard for me to incorporate it into broadcasting during a game uh, because I'm interested in what's going on on the field. And, and I don't have time to say well, this is why they shift way over there because they have the charts that say this and say that. Uh, but I, I am doing my best. I know there are players that are very outspoken about, uh, you know, they don't, they're not respectful of the analytics. Uh, I've told uh, Derek Falvey, who's the Twins baseball ops guy, and I will see next week. I spent some time with Ben Charrington and Matt Clintack of the Phillies, young guys, sure. Ivy League guys in a lot of cases. I said, I want to learn how you use this stuff so I can convey it to the listener. Uh, you know, I don't know if a lot of fans realize there is somewhat of a divide, uh, quite a divide, and I don't want to, I wouldn't mention names and throw current uniform personnel under the, bu under the bus, but when I say to a manager or a coach or somebody, well, you know, how, what are you doing with this launch angle? Are you teaching your guys? We don't want anything to do with it. If they want to do it, they do it. That's their attitude with a lot of it. 
So there's got to be a way, and the Twins, I understand, are, are doing well with this with Derek and Paul Molitor in providing them with information and then let the guys in the dugout in uniform uh, run the game the way uh, we know the game with our eyes and ears and instincts. Uh, so it's it's a learning process. And uh, I think the the one thing I've learned that they use analytics for and really doesn't have much to do with doing a game that day is to try to project the value of a player. Right. And uh, so I can understand why they're doing. But then again, see, that can be – you still have to go to the human element. I was talking to one of uh, executive of a major league team, and they were saying, well, you know, when a guy gets to his, like, say, age 33 or 34, the percentages say – that he goes downhill. Well, the Twins unloaded me in 73 when I was about to be 35. Ten more years. And I got together with Johnny Sane, and I changed my motion, and all of a sudden I had two of the best years I ever had. So you can't – analytics can't predict what a player is going to do to improve or what he's going to do to get comfortable and not be the same player he was four years ago. Johnny Sane was huge for you, right? Yeah, Johnny Sane. I just read an article about him uh, yesterday on the Internet about having two careers. You know, John uh, got released out of class D-ball in the mid-40s, went into the service, just started playing catch, spinning the ball, comes out of the service, wins 20 games in the next four the next five years. And, of course, if you look at his career as a coach, uh, starting with Whitey Ford, he had 20-game winners for the next 10 years. You know, Whitey was a 16-game winner when Johnny took over the pitching coach job with the Yankees. And so he said, uh, it might have been Casey first, maybe it was Ralph Houck. He said, isn't Whitey Ford your best pitcher? Yeah. Well, if he's your best pitcher and you can get him to the mound 40 times a year instead of 32, wouldn't we have a better chance of winning those other eight games? Yeah. Well, it, it, there's no problem for a pitcher pitching every four days. It's the ideal way to pitch. Well, Whitey goes 25 and four. Right. <laughs> and then he went to Minnesota and Mudcat wins 20. And then I have a 20 game season. And then he goes to Detroit and McLean wins 31. Yes. And so wherever Johnny went, he was, uh, he gave pitchers a lot of ideas that you would end up selling yourselves on, on, you know, this little nickel curve, we called it, or a control breaking ball, and, and really taught us how to pitch, you know, with our mind and have confidence in our stuff. What do you like about the game today in terms of when you're watching baseball today? What do you like and what kind of says, eh, you know, that bothers me a little bit? Well, I think, number one, I like the athleticism and the talent of the players. I mean, pitchers, when I look at, Things going back to when Andy Pettit came up with the Yankees and I was doing Yankee games, I said there's no way that I could do the things at 22 that Andy Pettit does with the ball at 22. All the things you've done, broadcasting, playing, the world championship, the gold gloves, uh, what are you most proud of as you look back on your career? Well, I, I think I'm, I, would, I would put in there grateful <clears throat> uh, rather than proud, but you mentioned it earlier in our interview that I can look back and say, you know, I, I never took a day off in terms of saying, well, I, I, I don't feel like pitching today. Uh, I mean, I, I, I remember going to Whitey in 82 and say, look, we don't come back in a lot of games because we don't hit a lot of home runs. I said, I can pitch every day for you. If we get behind 7 nothing in the fourth and you don't want to use – Doug Bear and Jeff Lottie, 
bring me in. I'll try to invent things and, and do that. So, uh, you know, and when Bruce Souter uh, in his Hall of Fame acceptance had me stand up and he said, I never played with anybody that took more pride in putting the uniform on every day. And so when I look back, I think that's what I'm grateful about, that I could put the uniform on every day and I was ready to pitch every day. This is really a pleasure, and thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you're this. welcome. Enjoyed it. He's one of the best. That is Jim Codd, and now he is headed, rightfully so, took too long, but rightfully so, he is headed to Cooperstown and the Hall of Fame, and hopefully you enjoyed that visit with uh, a Cardinal World Champion from the 1982 team. Let's say good morning, cross things over with Alex Ferrario. He's over at the EMB Granite uh, Studios at Centene. Good morning, Alex. How are we doing? Good morning, Danny Mack. Fantastic. It's a two-game win streak. It's a six-game win streak on home ice. I haven't made any comps today, so that's a good thing. Absolutely, and they're doing it with a bunch of guys that uh, we probably weren't really anticipating being on the ice at some point this year, but, boy, they've needed them, and a lot of these guys are coming through. Yeah, 100%, and specifically Nathan Walker, and he's the one that everyone's talking about, but how about Dakota Joshua last night? Danny picks up two assists. I think he was a plus three in that game. Charlie Lindgren, I played a cut from Doug Armstrong, who's going to join myself and Chris Kerber at the top of the hour. I played a cut from him yesterday talking about Charlie Lindgren, Lindgren on pregame and he said you know he didn't know much about Lindgren he had David Alexander the goaltending coach for the Blues tell him you got to sign this guy in the offseason they sign Lindgren and he comes in and he has a really strong performance uh, for the Blues last night so uh, we remember the Memphis Mafia uh, or the Memphis Mafia for the Cardinals run in the World Series I think we might be seeing a little Springfield squad action for this team let's uh well, tell us uh, what's coming up on your show because we got to get out of here so that we can get to Doug Armstrong at the top of the hour. Yeah, Doug Armstrong, president of Hockey Operations, is going to join us here at Centene in our E&B Granite Studios uh, at the top of the hour. we got Mike McKenna coming up in the 12 o'clock hour as well. Uh, plenty of uh, blues conversation to get into after this one, including Craig Berube, Jack Adams Award. Do we start the uh, conversation now? So we'll get into all of that today from 11 to 2 here at Centene. All right, looking forward to it. That's next on 101 ESPN. Have a great weekend.